Hi, I'm Ann Delisi. And I'm James Regato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, we're going to talk about demystifying champagne. And there's an awful lot to talk about. So we're going to get to that and talk with Paulina Shemansky and figure out a few things and get a little smarter about champagne. So here we are, James Regato. We're going to talk about something near and dear to your heart today. Of course. On today's uh, um, episode. And we have with us, to help us with this conversation, Paulina Shemansky, General Manager, Wine Program Manager, and Sommelier at Mabel Gray. That's right. Hi, and Paulina. Paulina, thank Hello. you so much for being here. Thank you. So James, you and I have talked a lot about um, champagne. Actually, you've talked a lot about it. I've learned a lot talking to you. But we thought that champagne is so interesting. It has such a history. We're going to try to demystify it. And I will be easily the person that doesn't know much, and I'll be an easy person um, to sort of lead this conversation with my questions because there's so much to know and so much like people like me don't know. So James, before we start talking with Paulina about the particulars, I really wanted to just ask you a simple question. Why do you love it so much? Yeah, that's uh, that's not a simple question. <laughs> I think the the obvious answer is, um, you know, it's the experience of drinking it, right? The taste, the aroma, um, you know, the the. I think for me, it's like the excitement of drinking champagne. I think that right. when you first have a glass of champagne, you know it's special. You're like, I feel like a lot of people when they hear a champagne bottle open, there's like there's like euphoria there. Mm-hmm. You're kind of excited. It's like it sounds like a celebration, and then when you actually enjoy what's in the glass, it stands alone. Like you don't have to know everything about champagne. It's just delicious as is. So if you're not somebody that needs to know about what you're consuming, you can just enjoy it as is. But once you start peeling the layers back, it is, I, I, I find it thrilling. It's thrilling to learn about. And once you start learning about it, it doesn't end. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a study in history. It's a study in terroir in, in, uh, palatability, just how delicious and vast the world of champagne. You think of it as like one thing. It's not. It is It is so many moving parts and it's, yeah, it's thrilling. At what point in the meal are we supposed to drink it? It's a great question. The whole time is my answer. <laughs> There's no wrong time to drink champagne. Uh, truly. Well, we just did a dinner with Madeline Trafon, who's, you know, a pretty famous uh, sommelier in the area, uh, in the world really, but she's from this area. And we we ended the meal like dessert had a pairing actually maybe dessert didn't have a pairing but we did like a cheese course dessert like the end like you're done eating and we gave everyone a glass of champagne kind of to turn some of the expectations expectations on their head like you can literally drink it anytime i mean mm-hmm. there's a famous chef fernand Pont who had the restaurant la pyramid uh in france and you know his, he was rumored to drink like two magnums a day. I think he like would literally get in the kitchen and start drinking champagne. Wow. Um, and some of that's probably folklore, or he just was a you know an, me at sixty. Um, but you know, even even like you know even in France where champagne is from, it is not. There's not a lot of rules on how and when and why to drink it all the time. We were doing tastings at nine a.m. We were drinking it till two in the morning. It there's no wrong what time, but. Usually before you eat anything else is a very common time. Mm-hmm. So when guests arrive, your first first sip of something is it's nice when it's champagne. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't stop there. Right. Pauline and I are we kind of order bottles the whole meal. You and I went out last night and yep. and we drank three bottles of champagne. Yes, we did with and the whole meal. 
So you do know yeah. that much, at least by now. <laughs> yeah. Champagne goes with everything. That is for sure. It was really lovely, but I'm not going to go into my experience. I'll just say that it was really something. So, Paulina, I'm going to get really, really simple with you and sure. ask you, what is champagne? Yeah, so I, it's it's a vast world of champagne, but it kind of boils down to the fact that it is sparkling wine made in Champagne, France. It has to be made in Champagne to be called Champagne. Um, and there are some rules regarding how it must be made, Method Champenoise being one of them. So there is a specific style of creating sparkling wine that was um, not necessarily invented by the French, but was capitalized and, and perfected in Champagne. And so there are a lot of French governmental rules over how it can be made. But long story short, it's basically sparkling wine from Champagne, France. It can be made from seven different grape varietals, but the most popular are Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Meunier. So it's interesting to know that there are government rules about this. Like, I didn't know that. And I didn't know that they had to be in that part of the world to be a legitimate champagne. Maybe the most... I feel like misspoken word in the wine world is calling any sparkling wine champagne. Uh, or like okay. when someone says, we took a glass of champagne, a champagne toast. In fact, I think most weddings that say champagne toast, they're not pouring you champagne. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's almost like 101 is to ask, is this champagne? And then, you know, when someone's either, oh yes, like, can I see the bottle? Right? Like you, th 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 so many people are pouring, even a, They'll say uh, a mimosa. Oh, it's orange juice and champagne. I, I guarantee if you're drinking a mimosa somewhere in America right now, it's probably Prosecco or Cava. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that, but champagne is very misused as a term, which uh -huh. is why the French government's like, whoa, whoa. There's a lot of money and <laughs> there's a lot of commerce going on. So that's why the government's heavily involved. So the difference would be is the stuff you're talking about that everybody's probably using and calling it champagne is not made where it's supposed to be made. It could have been made here in the United States right. or any other part of the world. And just really it's sparkling wine. And it's the method. And I'll let Paulina mm -hmm. talk about that. Yes. So Calvin Prosecco, right, Paulina? So why are those uh, so popular and interchangeably used in a lot of you know spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. So Prosecco and Cava, just being two examples of sparkling wines, there's also sparkling wine in Burgundy and there's sparkling wine in Lemieux and all sorts and Alsace. There's sparkling wine in northern Michigan. There's it's everywhere. Um, and there are other parts of the world that use method champenois. Um, in Italy, it's called Metodo Classico. So there are some really beautiful sparkling wines coming out of regions outside of Champagne. We are partial to Champagne in particular. Um the baseline of Prosecco and Cava is that they're made using the Charmant method or a tank method, um, which means that they're basically force carbonated or carbonated in large quantities and then bottled and shipped versus Method Champenoise being a first fermentation of still wine and then basically a secondary fermentation that happens in the bottle. And in the bottle is kind of where all the magic happens. Um, there's also a lot of mas machinery and hand disgorging. And there's a lot of what we refer to as human terroir or a lot of decision-making that happens between the winemaker and the grapes themselves. 
um, more so than your kind of baseline Cava's and Prosecco's, which also speaks to the price difference. Champagne is typically more expensive. Um, that's because there's a lot of process behind method champenoise. And in general, I would say that champagne is probably the highly, the most highly processed fine wine on the market. There's a lot of human aspects to that wine in particular. And there's also a limit on the production of champagne in champagne, like how much you can press, how much juice you can extract, which I don't know. I don't believe Cava Prosecco subscribe to those rules. I think if you have a big harvest, you crush a lot, you just go for it. In in you know the wine regions, um, Cava Spanish Prosecco is uh, you know Venetian. It's Northern Italian. Um, even though I, you know it's probably, Prosecco is also a, a protected word as well. You can't just say Prosecco from anywhere. The Italian government, the DOP, does a similar thing. Um, but Prosecco is produced in large volumes and pretty affordably. It's very you can find ten dollar bottles of Prosecco in the grocery store. That's mm-hmm. not a hard thing to find. Ten dollar bottle of champagne is very hard to find. All right, so let's talk about the part of France we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, what it's like there, why growing grapes there create such beautiful champagne. So can you talk about that, Paulina? Where in France are we talking about? How long, if you know, has have those grapes been growing in that region? And what is the future of that potentially? Certainly. Uh, This is my favorite part of Champagne, aside from drinking it, is talking about the history and the climate and the region in particular. Um, It's a really fascinating history. So Champagne is northeast of Paris. It's actually the most kind of climatically difficult region in France to grow grapes um, because it's on average 11 degrees Celsius. So it's it's a pretty chilly region. There's a lot of wet and windy winters. Um, basically, grapes have to really suffer here, um, which oftentimes makes the best wine. Mm-hmm. Um, Romans actually planted in Champagne first. So it's a very, very ancient uh, place to grow grapes. But there is history back to the 1700s of sparkling wine in this region. Ironically, it was made by mistake (laughs) entirely. Uh, They were actually intending on making still wine only. um, But Champagne is also, as an aside, it's a a very war-torn region. Mm -hmm. Back to Attila the Hun, just geographically, it was, it's very unfortunate between uh, kind of Northern Europe and everything that's happened like I said, from Attila the Hun all the way through World War II. It's pretty much been interrupted and loss of generations and crops for many, many centuries. Um, But in the 1700s, it was a huge trade route, specifically for textiles and for wine, uh, because of its proximity to Paris and also to uh, London as well. So these tradesmen would sell still champagne at the market in these huge barrel casks. And they would continue to ferment in the barrel and become slightly sparkling, which at the time, the Champenois people called an abomination or (laughs) (laughs) the devil's wine. It was not behaving the way that they had intended it to behave. Um, But of course, the crowd went wild. Everybody loved it. Um, The 
elite, like wealthy um, aristocracy, essentially, was begging for more sparkling wine. Um, but they had no idea why it was happening this way. This is, you know, two centuries before Louis Pasteur started to understand fermentation in mm -hmm. general. So they kind of came to the conclusion after copying off of cider culture in, in England, that if they had a stronger glass bottle and a cork, that they could kind of create this fermentation in the bottle. Um, grape growers in the region did not have access to this capital or these supplies to do this themselves. So, of course, um, born out of commerce, these tradesmen would purchase still wine from grape growers, add sugar, bottle it, and sell it at a high price to the elite. So that's kind of where Method Champenoise comes from. Um, it doesn't get perfected until the second half of the 19th century. So it is a lot of faulty wines being sold to market. Um, but really, everybody loved it. It was slightly sweet, slightly sparkling, and, a, and from the beginning was considered a wine for special occasions. Um, and so that's really like echoed in every aspect of champagne marketing today. But I just find it so fascinating that this commerce and marketing kind of engine has moved this all forward. And now that's changing very much with the grower champagne movement, which we can get in, uh, get into later, but that's kind of the genesis of how it was born. And, uh, they say that Dom Perignon is the father of champagne. That's kind of the, the myth. Um, but the reality is he was probably trying his hardest to make still wine and have it not sparkle <laughs> at all, um, which is ironic and, and hilarious. Dom, Dom is basically a term for like a, like, a, like a monk, right? It's like a father. It's like a, like a priest. Yep, correct. So yep. when you hear Dom Perignon mm -hmm. or Dom Ruinart, you know, Dom's used because the monks and the abbeys were really involved at that time in in, in the winemaking in general. Mm -hmm, especially, exactly. especially in this part of the world. I mean, if you look at, you know, chartreuse, you look at a lot of the beers, monks had a lot to do. Monks and abbeys had a lot to do with um, fermentation in general, alcohol mm -hmm. in general. Yeah, it was the relationship, I think, between the abbeys, the monks, and then the textile market where all of this kind of came together. And they basically, you know, turned something flawed into something fabulous. So now they figure out how to ferment. And even though it was an accident, now it's like, oh, if we do this, this will happen. Well, basically the secondary fermentation. Because I mean, wine is ancient. So they knew how to ferment. Mm -hmm. And they knew how to like, basically secondary fermentation, ha have a secondary fermentation in the bottle, which is where the sparkling comes from. Okay. So talk about that, Paulina, the second fermentation. Yes. Okay. So we have a, a still wine. Um, that is just beginning to ferment. Right. And then they basically add what's called a liquor de tirage, which um, continues the fermentation. They add it to the bottle, and then they either choose to cork it with a crown cap or a cork, which again, that just, that's another like lever that can be pulled by the winemaker. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a specific decision uh, that we can get into at a, at a later time. But... Um, it ferments in the bottle, and then basically they have to the. I guess how do how do I describe this? The alcoholic fermentation continues to happen, where the yeast is eating the sugar and producing 
carbon dioxide and mm-hmm. also alcohol. Um, they basically riddle the bottles by putting them on their side so that all the sediment from that from those spent mm-hmm. yeast cells goes down onto the, the neck of the bottle. And then it goes through a disgorgement process, basically. So they're, um, they can use disgorging machines where they use an ice cube to kind of like pop the neck of the bottle off and all the sediment comes out with it. They can also hand disgorge. Um, the choice of when to disgorge is also a, a pretty um, a pretty big determining factor in the final result of the wine, uh, which is another thing we learned a lot about when we were there. But then there's also a do, an addition of dosage, which is basically the seasoning of the wine itself. That's where you get the delineation of brute versus extra brute. Those are all discussions of dosage, added sugar. Um, it's funny. I actually was just in Chicago and I was chatting with a chef about having just been in Champagne because it's all I can talk about. And he said, uh, oh, you know, they've been uh, selling sugar as wine for centuries. <laughs> and I was like, at first I was like, oh, my gosh. And then I was like, oh, no, actually, you're right. And <laughs> I, I think it's pretty cool because it... The grapes are so acidic. The region is so cold. Uh, They don't get that ripening. Oftentimes without sugar, it's it's impalatable. So that was their way of of seasoning, essentially. So the dosage is very, very important. And the dosage, um, you know, the seasoning is also... They don't always do it, right? There's zero brute nature, right? Which is obviously they they don't Mm -hmm. dosage. Um, and then that liquor tirage is also, it's interesting how many different winemakers will use either just like a wine-based, based like a wine-based sugar or sugar, sugar, or like a blend of like really like uh, unique and interesting um, aged, you know, wines. Like some of these, some of these liquor tirages are like, you know, decades old. And they're just like almost like perpet. Uh, what do you call it? Like a perpet, like perpet- perpetual perpe- reserve. Yeah. Perpetual reserve, which is a blend. It's like, and it it almost looks like a science product. It almost looks like it wouldn't be legal to add to wine because you're like, this is like fifty years old or sixty years mm-hmm. old of like a sugary grape mixture. So is is this mixture always changing? Uh, at some oh. places, right? So some producers will have a very consistent process. They only do X, Y, or Z. And that's just their style. And then some places are a little more geeky about it. They're getting a little bit weirder. They're doing. They're taking more um, liberties with with their with their creative process. And so that's. I think you can never stop deep diving into this region and who does what and why. And most, you know, I think it's important for the listener to know. Like we learned this backwards. Pauline and I were drinking champagne and enjoying it happily, and then throughout our careers and lives started learning this. So you don't need to learn any of this to get into champagne. Right. You can just enjoy champagne. Right. But why different bottles are different prices and different expressions, this is this is kind of the this is what you start doing. You start researching who does what and why. And we'll be right back right after this. All of these things go, it's like timing seems to be a big thing. Like it, some of these take way more time than others. And, and it's up to the, the maker to decide like, okay, this is ready or it's not ready. And I'm going to. 
WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Do whatever I'm going to do to it. I'm going to add to it. I'm going to let it ferment longer, right? Um, by the time all of that reaches the shelves, when somebody walks into a store and said, I'm going to get champagne, how do they even know where to start? And what part of what we just talked about affects the prices that everybody sees and how it's going to taste? Because most people will walk in and just kind of even look at the label and go, okay, sold. You know, that label looks great. Without really understanding, like, why this price point is this way? How am I going to walk in and actually grab a bottle of champagne that I will like? That's a great question. And again, goes back to this genesis of marketing as being such a huge Mm -hmm. part of the region in particular. I would say, you know, we'd be remiss to not discuss the large houses of champagne. So the, the known Names, mm-hmm. Veuve Clicquot, Moet et Chandon. Mm-hmm. All of these are large houses that are purchasing most of their fruit. They're also usually non-vintage. So that's that meaning that they can blend multiple vintages together. This is all insulation against vintage variation, which is very common in a region that struggles with climate right. difficulty. That means essentially that if you if you're going to purchase in the grocery store a bottle of Veuve Clicquot 3 years ago is the same as a bottle it's going to taste the same because they champion the house style they adjust their dosage they adjust their blending to make it so that the wine tastes the same every year so it's year. always consistent and always consistent. would oh, if they wanted to drink that for their whole life yep. mm-hmm. it would always taste the same you can almost look at like i feel like large beer companies, right, are kind of in the same oh, stuff. Okay. I always liken it to like like to perfume and obviously not by the aroma, but by the consistency. If somebody, oh, I like to wear Chanel or somebody, wear, you know, I, like I, I'm a polo sport person. Like you like the way that it all, oh, it's like super consistent. You smell the same. That's your smell. That's who you are. And champagne, like, so if you like that style, Mums, Moet, you know, uh, even Dom Perignon, I mean, like, you know, they obviously are vintage, but like they have a style more or less that people subscribe to. Right. So like Dom drinkers love Dom and, that's the, 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 and they geek out about the next year's release. And there is a, a different one with Pauline is describing with the, with the, with the non-vintage, but some people have loyalty to brands and Vuvli Co is a good example because they, that's the, pr- the right price point. I think it's like what is it in the grocery store right now? Like 75 bucks? Yeah, 70 probably. So like 70, Vuclico is the yellow bottle. Right. I think most mm-hmm. people Everybody have seen knows it. it. Yep. It's, a, it's, like, it's such a commonly gifted. They're brilliant to me because they they have the cool label, the, the right color of the bottle, and it's the gift price. Mm-hmm. So if you have to take a bottle of something to someone's house, I drink a lot of Vuclico at Anthony Lombardo's house because he's always <laughs> gifted it. Everyone right. always goes over and gifts some champagne. And then that's the only champagne he has in his house, so I just drink all of his vuv. And it's perfectly fine. It's not my favorite, but I'll drink it. Right. You know, my favorite is of the big houses is Ruinart. Mm-hmm. And I know you you asked Paulina specifically, mm-hmm. but I would recommend for me, for a first-time wine drinker, to, 
to go for a big house that has a lot of respect, like Ruin Arts, um, even Vuv, um, $75 to $100 a bottle in the grocery store, and maybe go for a Blanc de Blanc, which is all Chardonnay. So right. it's, you're kind of already <clears throat> here in America. We understand Chardonnay pretty well. Um, so I think that that's, that's a great entry level, like first glass of champagne. Like if you drink a glass of Ruin Art Blanc de Blanc, um, you know, you probably can get five glasses out of it. So, you, you know, you're gonna have guests over to your house. You're mm-hmm. gonna spend a little under 20 bucks a person to gift everyone a nice glass of champagne. And if you find that you cannot stand that, you probably should save your money and not explore too much of the region beyond that. Cause I feel like if you don't like that, maybe carbonation's not for you. Maybe just the acidity's not for you. And then, you know, you probably, I feel like if somebody is, is grossed out by a glass of ruin art, like you could probably save a lot of money that, you know, not, not exploring the world of champagne. Right. But I think that that's such a delicious glass. You know, you can probably, I think most people will be like, wow, this is nicer than I expected. It doesn't taste like Tostiasti or, you know, some of these are Proseccos, which are perfectly fine for those that like it, but it's just, it's not the same thing. So once you open it at home, how much time do you have? You got to drink the whole thing? <laughs> Shockingly, no. I mean, we usually do drink the whole thing. Um, but if you do want to hang on to champagne after you've opened it, uh, champagne stoppers are great. They'll yeah. keep it bubbly for a couple of days. Yeah. And quite honestly, for for wines that are made beautifully, I don't mind losing a little bit of effervescence. I think really a very impressive champagne to me is one that I could enjoy even if it were still because the carbonation is a little distracting. And I think that is also part of the genesis of the marketing of champagne and, and method champenois in particular is that you're adding sugar and you're adding bubbles so you can mask a lot of flaws. It's It allows for a lot of wiggle room. Um, that has changed now with a grower champagne movement, as I mentioned before. We're moving towards more vin- vineyard speci- specificity, a little bit more terroir expressive wines where you really could knock all the bubbles out and it's just a delicious wine on its own. But I would say I really love my champagne served between f- like 45 and 50 degrees. So Probably, you know, a little warmer than the average person is used to. Um, That really allows the aromas to kind of um, pop out of the glass. I prefer a universal wine glass, like a regular wine glass, uh, red or white, to a flute. Flutes kind of limit how far you can get into the glass and Mm -hmm. how close you can get to the wine. Um, So, yeah, I mean... I recommend drinking the whole bottle if you can with friends. But if you are really interested in champagne and want to buy a couple of bottles, just invest in a few champagne stoppers and you can give yourself little side-by-side tastings anytime you'd like. And when you talk about drinking the juice still, um, you could, so a lot of Psalms will do this where they take a glass, like a, like a traditional wine glass, fill it with a couple ounces of champagne put their hand over the top and you literally shake the glass. You kind of like knock the CO2 out of it. And then you can taste the the wine much more still. And it's interesting because if you do that with some of these pretty cheap cavas and stuff, you taste the juice without the carbonation and you're like, wow, this is actually not delicious. Right. Um, And a lot of the sweet sparkling wines in the world to me, like they they taste like soda. They taste like Sprite or something. Um, And I'm not a Mm -hmm. very big fan of that. But yeah, Paulina's, she's dead on that if you really want to taste a champagne, you know, kind of knock the bubbles out and taste the juice. And that's that's a real great sign of quality production. Uh, 
And I think that, you know, I guess like, because I love Ruin Art, Paulina, what, what do you, I want your opinion, you know, for everybody. Cause you know, I think just talking about champagne gets people excited. And what is a, what is a great first um, bottle to buy at the grocery store in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, I, I like to, I like to recommend bottles $50 or under. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult to make that purchase, you know, if you're really not sure what you're getting yourself into. Um, for a while, our house champagne at Mabel was Bruno Payard, uh, Premier Cuvée, which is delicious. It's a Pinot Noir dominant blend. Um, it's extra brute, so low in dosage. So if you think that you prefer the driest or drier style of champagne, then that's a great point of entry. Um, champagne Baron Fuente is also a favorite that I've been seeing pop up in grocery stores lately, and that's on the lower end in terms of price. And that's Pinot Meunier dominant, which is really interesting. Those three varietals serve a purpose in the blend, um, and it's interesting to taste things, you know, kind of on their own. And remind us how we know for sure we're getting champagne. It'll say champagne on the label. It has to sh- say that. Yep, yep. And, and um I don't know. I guess, you know what? People can be tricky because Mum, for example, has vineyards in California. Mm-hmm. Rotorare has vineyards in California. So you might have to be a little, do your research a little yeah. bit. Um, but in general, it should say Champagne Baron Fuente or Champagne Bruno Payard. And they will call France, it out. too. Like the bottle will almost always say product of France. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or at least, and I highly recommend, even at your most generic grocery store, you know, ask, like literally, I mean, you should ask your, um, if they have a decent champagne selection, then somebody's behind it all. Mm-hmm. You can ask them and say, Hey, like, is this, you know, what do you know about the champagne or, you know, what, what do you recommend? Like, there's nothing wrong with asking. I mean, even, I mean, I, I'm a forever student of champagne. I forget things all the time. Right. I'm guilty of like, I have friends that'll try to pour me something. I'm like, I've never had this before. And I've been at the vineyard with these people. Like they're pouring me something we drink at the, and I'm like, oh, I forgot. Yes, I guess I forgot we were there. So uh, I'm guilty of just constantly forgetting things. So I always, I love asking. I mean, I ask Paulina things all the time. I'm like, you know, it's, it's, it's good to just constantly stay, uh, you know, refreshed. So ask, you know, go and around here in, in Southeast Michigan, Plum Market does a great job. I mean, really they have a wonderful wine program, great representatives, um, you know, that work, that work the wine department. Uh, even holiday market, there's almost always mm-hmm. somebody like standing there waiting for questions. So ask. Absolutely mm-hmm. ask. One thing that people do like to use, which you mentioned earlier, champagne for, is a mimosa. What's the ratio that we should use when we pour a mimosa? And should we use real champagne to do it? I would say yes, instead of a sparkling wine. Or can you get away with whatever? I would say no. I would use I would use a cava. Personally, ah. I think adding orange juice, I think that is for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. I would not use champagne. Although, let's say you have too much champagne or like New Year's Day, like you have, too, you have a couple of open bottles that maybe aren't as super carbonated. Oh, yeah, okay. go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say save your money because the second you add even an ounce of orange juice, it really doesn't matter what. I mean, there's more, there's more sugar and acid variations in different orange juices in the grocery store that like – even the, you know, I feel like even the cheapest kava is not going to, it's going to mm-hmm. be very hard to tell the difference. So I, I would recommend, you know, although me personally, if I was at, a, I would literally drink my orange juice 
and then I would drink a glass of <laughs> or, yeah. you know, or vice versa. <laughs> I wouldn't mix them. But uh, but yeah, that's a good question. What is the ratio if you're making a, a mimosa? And would you use Calva or, or Champagne Paulina? You know, I would probably actually use Prosecco um, just because I think that that's kind of a more traditional a traditional route. Um, and I, I like just a little splash of orange juice in anything that I do sparkling wise. And I would agree with you, chef, that if, if I'm splurging on the champagne, then I'm having like coffee, Bloody Mary, glass of orange juice, glass of champagne, and kind of enjoying them all separately. Um, but I would say if you want to do an at-home mimosa, I would do four ounces of Prosecco and maybe three quarters to an ounce of of orange juice. Good to know. And we'll be right back right after this. In this conversation, we're trying to educate people about champagne, make it demystify it, as you've said in the past, James. Um, So let's talk about some real simple things like what do you eat with champagne? What glasses do you use? I think everybody thinks there's one glass for yeah, champagne, the flute. Mm-hmm. the flute. And I thought we should kind of talk a little bit about how do we do this correctly when we delve into that world. There are so many different styles of champagne that it can pair with spicy food. It can pair with rich food. It can pair with delicate food, depending on which um, which style of champagne you choose to enjoy. I think uh, in terms of glassware, I love a universal wine glass over a flute. Flutes um, limit your ability to really kind of access the aroma of uh. the champagne, which I think people in general don't uh, enjoy kind of swirling and, and sniffing their champagne because the bubbles, you know, kind of are uh, invasive in that way. But it's very important. So the universal wine glass allows for a little bit of oxygenation um, and for the bubbles to dissipate ever so slightly. And then you can just really have the full experience. I wouldn't worry about losing bubbles necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a, an old myth. And then I'll let Chef chime in on uh, his favorite foods to enjoy with champagne. Yeah. And I think for the the, the glassware, I mean, honestly, I've, I feel like I've drank champagne out of every vessel possible, so I'm not too—I'm not too particular. I do I do like the universal glass the best. You know, I think the flute is like—there's moments if you're at a wedding, there's things where someone hands you a flute, it feels nice. Mm-hmm. So I think—and, you know, if a champagne is less exciting to me, like there's like a—it's like an okay— you know, label, I'm fine. I don't need to like, oh my God, sit there and relish in the notes. So sometimes the flute to me is perfectly fine. You know, in the coupe, which I feel like some people pronounce coupe, I think coupe sounds silly. So even if it is pronounced like that, I like abbreviated coupe. But that's like what you see a lot of cocktail bars serving, like, you know, the, the last word cocktail famously is served in a coupe. I like it. I like champagne in a coupe. It's not practical, it's filled to the brim. You're spilling it on yourself, but it looks so great, Gatsby. So mm-hmm. I, I like the look <laughs> of the coupe, the functionality of the all purpose. And then I do occasionally like the the ceremony of the of the flute. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really depends on the champagne. If you're spending over 100 bucks in a bottle, pour it into a universal wine glass, enjoy the aroma. So like, you know, but if someone's handing it to you for free, who cares? Take it in a Dixie cup. <laughs> but, and then as far as food goes, I mean, honestly, it goes with everything. A lot of, it just depends on the champagne. Most of the champagnes in glass form that you're drinking around America are going to be, 
you know, either like high, super high acidity, fresh, bright, young, maybe mostly Blanc de Blancs. That's where you see cheese, caviar, blinis, potato chips, oysters, shellfish, like, you know, the, the, the briny, the briny, salty, crunchy, uh, you know, starchy foods love that bracing acidity, mm-hmm. you know, Blanc de Blanc. But then I think if you look at some of these, like, you know, some of the skin contact rosés, and I say that because they blend a lot of red wine into the champagne rosés. I like the skin contact. It has more, I want to say, like, chewy or it's almost more, like, fleshy. So that's where I want something maybe like roasted chicken, um, crispy skin on a fish, I, miso. I want some more Asian flavors, mm-hmm. some umami. I, I get a lot of miso in some of these skin contact or even long lees contact um, champagnes. I get I get miso frequently, so I love to— Literally pair it with miso um, or other, other you know, Japanese food and champagne is, is phenomenal. There's a couple of places in Japan where I had champagne with um, omakase tasting menus. And I mean, sushi and champagne is a really brilliant pairing. So if you, if you, you know, that's some, that's a good place to start. And I mean, almost any sushi, I mean, soy sauce and champagne are really, they, mm-hmm. snuggle, they snuggle together well. So I, I say, if you, you know, if you just seafood, but specifically Japanese food really loves champagne. Uh, Paulina, temperature is yes. this a big a de- as big a deal as I suspect it is? <laughs> it is. I think in general, champagnes are served ice, ice, ice cold, mm-hmm. um, which is perfectly fine and refreshing on a on a patio. I mean, I absolutely love an ice cold glass of champagne. Mm-hmm. I think the winemaker would probably want you to drink it a little bit warmer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say probably between 45 and 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you're given a glass of champagne that you want it to kind of show its personality a bit more, you can just let it sit in the glass, warm it up with your hands. It'll it'll evolve over time as it warms up. Um, but yeah, I, I would say in general, pull it out of the fridge for 20 to 30 minutes before you before you open, but not too long because then it'll explode. I, I personally love to start I want to I want my first sip to be like ridiculously ice cold and this is this is the the American in me so like this is I like my carbonated beverages ice cold but champagne I like to also pour like six ounces into my glass and then let it kind of like warm up and change as you drink it mm-hmm. I do like the first sip to be ice cold and it's like a, this is a preference this isn't this isn't textbook because the bottle will it's gonna sit it's gonna it's gonna change as you drink it. I don't need. I don't need like a. I, honestly, I don't even need an ice bucket. If the, if the bottle comes to the table really, really cold, sometimes I'll say no. You know, you can keep the ice bucket. I drink it pretty fast, and I like it to warm up that ten degrees while it's sitting there. And I think after you've had a couple of glasses, your mouth is kind of like opened up to it, and then as it warms up, you don't mind so much. But I do think like I don't say warm, but like not cold carbonation is is um, not as pleasing to the palate, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about the future of champagne. It seems like an ever-changing um, industry, especially with new makers coming in. So what do you guys think is going to change, especially because are they going to be able to continue to harvest these grapes in the region? How much longer is that going to happen? I mean, at some point, you can't continue to grow the same thing in the same spot for you know for decades and decades. So what do you guys see as the future of where we're going to grow the grapes? Is champagne still going to allow um, this kind of, you know, harvest year after year? What are we looking at over there? This was a huge topic of discussion amongst winemakers and uh, just kind of 
reps of larger houses and small houses in general is the concept of climate change. It's a huge, huge, I don't want to say issue, but I guess topic to consider in Champaign because it's so reliant on its chilly climate that as things warm up, you know, that everything has to change. So they're either going to have to shift farther north or change the varietals that they're growing to better suit this particular um, new climate that they're they're walking into. I know for sure that the three warmest vintages in Champagne's history have all been within the past 15 years. So it's, it's kind of happening rapidly. And so there's a huge response to that, uh, specifically in the large houses that I think we found really impressive. Dom Perignon actually we visited this year and they were saying that they have a lab where they basically plant vines and then test them against future weather conditions. So wow. Isn't that? Sounds very Dom Perignon. Is, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to happen there. But that is really, uh, you know, the whole science of it all and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to continue to do this well and adapt. That's a big deal. I think to uh, Cote de Champenois, which is basically their still wines, that's kind of a, I don't want to say like hipster as a slang, but like it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a hip thing going on in the younger generations. It's been around. Cote de Champenois has always been there. Mm-hmm. You could always, it's always been been made, but you're seeing it kind of show up more now where houses are kind of like, and here's our still wine. And so you're like, okay, that's interesting. Is the future of Champagne still wine? Like, I don't know, but I think it's definitely going to be more prevalent as fruit ripens, if you have, like, for instance, if you have the soil, if you have the grapes and the vines and everything's going well, and now you have a ripening, I don't say pro- situation, I think that I could, I could see the French being like, well, now this part of the area, we're going to focus on still wines. So I can see that becoming prevalent in the region because the French are very, um, you know, practical when it comes to agriculture. So mm-hmm. they, I can see them adapting and I mean, we had some still champagnes, which is a funny thing to say because it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's, it's you know, champagne is the region and they made the still wine and they were delicious. I mean, it's right next to Burgundy. Parts of champagne were once considered Burgundy based on, you know, territory and that's been a fight. That's, a, that's probably a whole different topic. It's more of like a history and politics. Mm-hmm. But parts of champagne were once considered Burgundy. So if you look at, you know, red Burgundy, most people don't think immediately of like, Champagne as a neighboring product, you know, right. they, they feel separate uh, on, on the dinner table, but they're actually really close in proximity. So I, I, I think that was one thing that I was surprised to see and was that, OK, still wine is I can see the winemakers thinking and talking about still wine more than I expected. Very interesting. Well, where can people learn more? I mean, certainly from our podcast, but where can they learn more if they want to read about it? Are there any books or websites or anything so people can like go armed with information when they head into a restaurant and they're going to order champagne? Absolutely. We have, I have a ton of of favorites, but my first and foremost, um, Peter Leem, uh, he has a website, it's called champagneguide.net and it's incredibly comprehensive. But then he also came out with a gorgeous, I guess it's a coffee table book, but really it's like a textbook tome. And it includes all of these topographical maps from the 1940s um, that are, you know, kind of these huge, frameable, beautiful pieces of art. And then individual um, 
kind of interviews with winemakers from very, very site-specific plots in Champagne. So if you have any interest whatsoever, it's a phenomenal gift for anyone, for yourself. It looks great on your coffee table. Um, also, the book um, that I've been reading most recently that I love is called Bursting Bubbles. It's by Robert Walters. It's specifically about the grower champagne kind of change and shift. Um, he's a little biased towards a small producer, but he does um, he does pay homage to the larger houses mm-hmm. as well. But that's a very um, kind of cuvee specific. He goes through all of his favorite kind of wines and um, interacts with all of the winemakers. It's very, very uh it's a, it's a great, easy, fun read. And then also we have a really wonderful champagne list that we've been working on at Mabel. So if you'd like to come and visit us there, I'll most likely be there and, and would love to talk more more about specific um, wines that we've brought back with us or love to enjoy together. I think I think as well, Anne, if, if you see a champagne list or, or multiple champagnes on a menu – and, you know, somewhere in your price point that you can afford, I would say engage the staff and say, hey, these, this is cool. Um, I want to know more about these champagnes. Like, I'm interested. I just don't know which one I want. Uh, can you tell me the difference? If they can't or you don't feel like they have a good grasp on it or, like, you're not being sold well, then say, ah, no, thanks. I'm going to get a gin and tonic and say, like, move on. Mm-hmm. Like, if you – like, because I think that not knowing and drinking sometimes, like – you know, it's a it's a commitment. It's, mm-hmm. The people selling you the wine should know at least a little bit about why it's special. So I would say engage the staff because if, if there's a decent champagne list, they're going to have put some energy into it. So someone should come over and talk to you about it. If you want to know more about a wine in a restaurant, most people in the restaurant are probably pretty excited to talk about it. Right. So engage the staff. I feel like that's a... It's a thing that in the Midwest where I think we're we're, we're more um, humble or, or maybe nervous about bothering somebody to come talk. Mm-hmm. It's like you know adding on to someone's workload. But most most restaurants that carry high quality wines want to talk about it. So engage the staff at that restaurant. You're gonna learn. I mean, I do it all the time, and I learn. I learn a ton every time I order a bottle of wine because usually I'm asking questions. That's pretty great. All right, Paulina, thank you so much, uh, James, certainly for sharing your trip and all of your insights on uh, champagne. Uh, I feel like we could do another episode in the future um, the next time you guys take a trip um, to champagne and come back with more information and more things that we should try. Uh, thanks again, you guys. Uh, you're listening to uh, Essential Cooking. I'm Ian Delisi, of course, with my co-host, Chef James Rigato, and our guest today, uh, sommelier uh, Paulina Shemansky. We would like to thank you for listening. Essential Cooking is produced by me, and Alisi, along with my co-host, Chef James Regato. This episode was also produced, engineered, edited, and mastered by Connor Anderson, with production support from David Lyons, original music by the Mallard Brothers. Essential Cooking is a production of WDET's public radio station. 